Larry Turner shares a story about how he finally went to get his driver's license when he was 18 years old. He went to the police station because that's where somebody would come to administer the test. He and an officer got in the car and they began to drive on a two-lane highway behind the police station. After a while, the officer said, okay, I want you to make a three-point turn. So he turned his wheels to the left, went across the road, then he turned them to the right, started backing up, and when he backed up, he went a little too far, actually put the back tires off the road, and it had been raining all day the day before. So when he turned his wheel back to the left and stepped on the accelerated, his tires just began to spin, creating a rut, and his car could not get out. A disgruntled officer said, well, let me see if I can push you out of here. I'll get out, and when I give you the signal, gently step on the accelerator when I tell you to. So the officer got behind the car. He gave the signal, and Larry gently stepped on the accelerator, but the wheels just kept spinning and spinning, the rut getting deeper, and then he heard the officer yell, Stop! He walked up to the driver's side window, covered in mud, with a big drop of water hanging off the tip of his nose. Gently, son. I said, gently. They had to wait for a passing motorist to come and help them get out, and needless to say, Larry Turner failed his driver's test, which is not unusual. A lot of people that are good drivers today actually did fail a driver's test once upon a time. Sometimes we do fail at things that are somewhat easy. I mean, I find myself thinking of a free throw in basketball. It's just a 15-foot shot. It's not that far, and yet people that are paid millions of dollars sometimes miss free throws. None of us want to be remembered in life by the things we can't do. None of us want to be remembered for our mistakes or our messes or our biggest blunders. And to that end, for those of you that are joining us on this Easter Sunday, this is what we have been looking at in the season of Lent. That King David, a man that was described as being after God's own heart, was someone who had messed up big time. He commits adultery. He tries to cover that up by conspiring to commit murder. And he thinks he gets away with it, but when he doesn't, David doesn't run. He now is going to write a song, a psalm of repentance that we call Psalm 51. We didn't study this psalm during the season of Lent just so we could avoid the mistakes that David made. We looked at the psalm because, number one, we see that the condition David had gotten in was one where he had lost his spiritual passion. and Sometimes that happens to us as well. We also looked at how David recovered from his blunders, so we could learn that too. During Lent, we pretty much went through each verse one at a time, but today I want to read the greater part of the psalm, but not the entire psalm. So I invite you to give your attention to this reading from God's Word. Have mercy on me, O God. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you, and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, 
but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. And do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Sometimes in life we find ourselves in a place where we just feel like we're going through the motion. We just feel like we're spinning our wheels. We're, we're settling for spiritual status quo. And when that begins to happen, we find ourselves just not really feeling much of anything, but not being in a good place. And if there's something we can learn on this Easter, it's this. There is not a rut in our life that we could be found in that God is unable to get us out of. That's what we learn when we look at David's life. David is in this massive hole, but he's appealing to God to get out of it. And he does this by appealing to God's mercy, to appealing to God's unfailing love and his great compassion. And that's what we should do too. When we have come to that place where we've messed things up or we've made a blunder of ourselves or, or we've just really made a big mistake, it's not the time to hide from God. It's the time to run to God because God is rich in mercy, his love never fails, and his compassion is greater than we could possibly comprehend. So if, if you're in a place where sometimes you think, man, I, how, how can I get out of this rut? Let this be good news. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, then God is more than capable of raising us to new life too. This is what David needed. He didn't need that old life back. He needed new life. God can raise us up to new life, no matter what the circumstances. Every year around Easter, there's always another date on the calendar that draws my attention to it. That date is April the 12th, five days ago. Sometimes April 12th is actually on Easter. And the reason my attention is drawn to that is because April 12th was my dad's birthday. Some of y'all know about a year and a half ago in November of 2020 during the height of the pandemic, my dad called one day and he told me he was in the hospital. And so I asked him, you know, what was going on? He said, well, I fell at home and I couldn't get up. No one could get me up. So we had to call 911 and they came and, and they picked me up and they wanted to take me to the hospital, but it's a pandemic. And so when I got to the hospital, they had to do a COVID test and he goes, I have COVID. Didn't know how he got it. Didn't know but possibly where he might have contracted that. He goes, I feel fine. And that was probably the last day that he would say that. The next two weeks were very hard. I couldn't go see my dad in the hospital. Whenever I would talk to him, he couldn't really talk because it was hard for him to breathe. And it was time for us to begin to make some hard decisions. Decisions that would have been harder had they not been decisions we had talked about for a long time. He had been in the hospital a little over a week, and the hospital called me, and they said, okay, he's, he's really not doing well. We've got him on as much oxygen as we can put him on, and 
it looks like we're going to have to put him on a ventilator. Okay. They said, well, no, you don't understand it. Before we will put him on the ventilator, we have to know how long we can leave him on there before we take it off. And I said, okay, well, you've got to give me a minute. And I called my friend, my primary care physician, was also my dad's primary care physician, Todd Clapp. Todd was in the last service. He's a member here at St. Andrews. Todd knew what my dad's physical history was and knew his condition, and I called him. I said, here's the deal. My dad's got COVID. He's in the hospital. They want to put him on a ventilator, and they want to know how long they can leave him on there. And Todd said, you know, given everything about your dad, probably seven days is a reasonable time. After seven days, he probably would not recover. So I called the hospital back, and they said, have you made a decision? I said, well, if my dad is conscious, it's really my dad's decision. I want to know what he has to say. And so my dad was a little bit confused, but he understood what was going on, and he just didn't know. And I said, well, I called Todd, and Todd said seven days is reasonable. And my dad said, well, that's what I was thinking too, which is really my dad just trying to take control of the situation. You know, if it was his idea, it was always a good idea. And so we agreed they would not leave him on there longer than seven days. A couple of days later, they put him on the ventilator. Of course, he couldn't talk. He couldn't communicate when that was happening. And the first day they called and they said, this, this is not looking good. And the second day they called and they said, his kidneys have shut down. And I said, well, that would be his kidney. He only has one. He had a cancerous kidney removed about three years ago. They said, well, if, if his kidneys aren't going to work, we can do dialysis to keep him from going septic, but to give him dialysis we have to take him off the ventilator what do you want to do I said well it's really not what I want to do it's what my dad wants if we do anything that would be against my dad's desires and we're keeping him alive against his will my dad has always been very clear he never wanted to be kept alive by a machine so we're not going to do dialysis and it's okay to take him off the ventilator I miss my dad Would I love to have him back? Not in the rut that he was in. I had talked to the palliative care nurse, and she said, the doctor will have to call you and redo all this. And so I talked to the doctor, and he explained everything. He said, we've exhausted everything we could possibly do. And I said, yes, I understand that. And then I told him this. I said, doctor, here's what you need to know. I am a man of great faith. And if we really put my life in, my dad's life into God's hands, God will either do a miracle so great in raising him up, or God will bring him into his eternal presence. And I'm okay with that. See, my dad, like King David, had made his fair share of blunders in life. I do want to be clear, he didn't kill anybody. <laughs> But there were things in his life that even though he believed in God and even though he knew God, he just he never could forgive himself, even when other people had forgiven him. And when, when David writes this psalm, it's very clear that David knows that he's in a rut that he can't get out of by himself. And so he appeals to God's mercy and he appeals to God's love and compassion. And somehow my dad just, just never really found the power of that grace in his understanding. 
but it was a grace that he trusted in. And whenever it is in our lives, we get in our, ourselves in a mess and we're in a rut and we feel like we can't get out and we wonder what God is going to do for us, then brothers and sisters, I want you to hear the good news. There is not anything that we can get ourselves into that God cannot raise us out of to new life. That's what the story of Easter is about. And when David prays this, he's saying, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Lord, you, you have given me such joy. Can you remember, can, can you recall the time in your life when you felt the weight and the burden of your sinfulness lifted off of you because you'd experienced the grace of God? And that is a feeling you never want to lose. But even the most experienced Christians among us know and understand that we can't always live by feelings because feelings change and feelings come and go. And whenever we're trying to walk by faith but we get into this rut, all of a sudden we begin to hear these voices telling us that, that we're bad people and we're not faithful and God can't do anything for us. And those voices are never the voices of God. And so part of David's prayer is not just that the Lord would restore the joy of his salvation. He says, but make me willing to obey you. You see, a safeguard against losing the joy of our salvation is walking in obedience to God's ways. Now, sometimes when we're doing that, we get stuck in the status quo. We get stuck in the rut. But this really is a safeguard to helping us to help us experience the joy of salvation, to know that there's nothing we get into that God does not raise us to new life from. I read a story this past week about a man. He was driving to work. He had driven the same highway to work for 20 years, and all of a sudden he sees flashing lights in his rearview mirror, and he is pulled over. State trooper comes up and says, Well, sir, did you know that you failed to stop at that stop sign back there? He said, I've been driving this highway to work for 20 years, and I have never stopped at that stop sign. <laughs> he goes, well, I bet you never forget now, and he hands him a ticket. <laughs> the next day, the trooper's on patrol. A call comes up that there's an accident at that same intersection. He goes, and he's surprised to see the man he'd given a ticket to the day before. And he walks up to the window, and he says, hey, you know, what happened? He goes, I don't know. You've got to ask the guy that rear-ended me. And so he walked back to the car behind him and he looked at this guy and he inquired as to what was going on. And the guy said, it wasn't my fault. I've been following this guy to work for 20 years and he's never stopped at that stop sign before. <laughs> and so, you know, when we're trying to walk in obedience to God's way, if that has been a change in our life because we've been walking in disobedience, there's some people that are just going to run right into us. And they're going to rear-end us because they don't understand the transformation that is going on in our lives. And again, we will hear those voices telling us that, that we're bad people and that we're worthy and God doesn't want anything to do with us. I read a quote a few weeks ago. I've been saving it for today because I think this is so powerful. A woman named Jennifer Greenberg wrote this. She said, if death and all the demons of hell couldn't stop Jesus from loving you, do you honestly think your sinner trauma stands a chance? Woo! That's a good word. If death and all the demons of hell could not stop Jesus from rising from the dead, do you think there's any possibility they can stop Jesus from getting you out of the rut you're in? It just doesn't happen. And one of the things that, that David prays, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I love the, the, the word restore. The, the word restore literally means the return of that which was taken away. 
If, if David had lost the joy of his salvation, it was taken away from him in his sinfulness. When we lose the joy of our salvation, it's taken away from our sinfulness. But when things that we like that, that are old and they're worn with time, we don't just throw them out or get rid of them because they're old. We restore them to their original beauty. I'm, I'm not a gearhead, but I love seeing old automobiles that have been restored and just how beautiful they look and, and what they were like. I, I love old houses that have been restored or old furniture that has been restored. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you, God loves a life that he can restore. He wants to restore it for us. If something has been taken away from you, God can restore you to new life. Consider those that were closest to Jesus. Consider those who, who loved him, who followed after him, the, the apostles, other disciples, his, his family, and, and how it was that, that on that day that Jesus was crucified, they believed that something had been taken away from them, something that could never be given back again. Because for three years they had followed after Jesus. For three years, Jesus had been their role model. Jesus had been their, their advocate, their teacher, their guide, their provider. And most of all, Jesus had said, you're my friends. He'd given their life meaning. And when he died, life felt pretty meaningless. He'd given their life a message, a message of the kingdom of God. He had given their life a mission to go forth and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God while they were healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the skin of lepers, and casting out demons. That was the mission that Jesus had given to them. And they felt like all this was gone because Jesus was gone. They wondered if they were going to be the next ones to die. And then... Y'all know what that means, right? The good part is coming. They thought they were going to be the next to die, and then creation began to tremble. The earth began to shake. The stone began to wobble until it rolled away, and now the tomb is open, and the Son of God walks out of the tomb bringing life out of death and they looked to the eastern sky and when they looked and they saw the sun breaking over the horizon as the light began to push away the darkness it reminded them that Friday is in the past and Sunday is in the present there was nothing bad about that day even as unbelievable as it was because the reason Jesus resurrects from the dead is so that he can restore life to us. He can give us back what has been taken away. That back in the book of Genesis, whenever sin enters into the human experience, now Jesus is going to conquer that and he's going to make life new. Whatever grave he came out of is so much greater than any rut we could ever be in. And if death and the demons of hell couldn't stop Jesus from loving you when he rose from the dead, does that other stuff stand a chance? Because the good news is now preached by every faithful heart that believes salvation is available to all people. It's available to you. It's available to me. It's available to those who have never heard 
or those who have heard and have yet to believe. And this is the message that we proclaim, that Jesus is raised from the dead, and that makes all the difference because now he invites us into his eternal presence. Let us pray.